Hello everyone and welcome to episode 39 in the David Cassidy Connections podcast. I am Louise Poynton and I am delighted today to welcome my guest Robin Haddon who was personal assistant to David when he took over the starring role in EFX, the biggest show in Las Vegas in 1996. Everyone knew he was a good soul. He was. He was very empathetic and very understanding. I mean, you know, somebody who could read emotions and things as well as, um, you know, cognitive things, you know, just made him a really special person. And then we went to the UK and he, when he went to the UK, that's where um, I really, I would sit back and I would watch him. He'd go out and he was really, really adored. So we walk up to the the ticket counter and he had his sunglasses on. And so we walk up and he pulls his sunglasses down a little bit and he looks at the girl and he was like, you know, hi, I'm David Cassidy. And the girl just melted. (laughs) That's the effect that he had on people. (laughs) The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. David Cassidy took over the lead role in the $75 million extravaganza EFX in 1996. Under his creative vision, the show was given a new lease of life and became the most successful production in Las Vegas. The show landed a number of awards, with David voted Best All-Round Performer and Best Singer. Working alongside him during his time on the show and later productions at the Copa and the Rat Pack is Back was his personal assistant, Robin Haddon. David replaced Michael Crawford, who had hand-picked Robin to be his personal assistant, and she continued that role with David. When David returned to concerts, Robin toured the United States and the UK with him, making lifelong friendships with many fans. I'm delighted to welcome Robin as my guest today, sharing anecdotes from her years knowing David. She explains why at 40, she decided to follow her dream to become a mother through IVF and an anonymous donor. She talks about the career path which led her to Vegas and what life is like now. But we start at the beginning. Oh, it's so lovely to see you. So glad to meet you. (laughs) Oh, I'm thrilled to meet you, Robin. Your original plans were to be a pharmacist. They were. And oh my gosh, yes, that's what I had wanted to do. Yes. (laughs) Can you you take me through your journey from Mm -hmm. that dream, ambitions into the world of entertainment? I think as I was going through school, I was really, I've always been, um, I've interpreted, my aunt would always say that I interpreted the world through a scientific lens. And so um, I've always been, I was always interested in that. I was, I loved biology. I loved physics. I loved chemistry, you know, and all of that. So when I went to school, I think one of the first things that's just so hard at a young age to determine what it is that you really want to do for the rest of your life or any of that. So I'd gone to school, um, and I got a biology degree and my intention then was to go to pharmacy school. So I was close to, uh, the end of my undergraduate degree in biology with a minor in chemistry. I struggled quite a bit with organic chemistry, but I finally passed. (laughs) And um, as I started getting closer to the end of being out of school and all that, I realized I just wanted to be out of school. I think I was somebody who probably was expected to go to school. And then I had a hard, just, I had a hard transition for whatever reason, you know, being like outside of, you know, graduating high school and then wanting to go immediately into college. And I had taken some time off and this is probably a key. So I graduated high school, I went to college and I was there for a quarter. And 
my, uh, I was in a relationship, we broke up and then my aunt had called me. My aunt lived in Las Vegas and my uncle had a show. Um, and he, my sister and I had, um, gone all around. That's how we got to see a lot of the United States was over the summers and different things we would go with them. Um, you know, to the first time I ever saw the Statue of Liberty was with my uncle. The first time we saw the ocean was at Virginia Beach with my aunt and uncle. And, you know, so they would take us during um, school breaks. She said that he was taking a show to Aruba. When his band was younger, he had um, gone there before and they loved it. But they all, now all of his musicians, they all had children. And so they weren't available to go and do an extended stay or whatever. And I got this crazy, I, I was like, can I audition? And so my aunt was like, Yes, but you have to understand that if you audition and you don't make it that, you know, that, you know, we have to do what's best for the show and all of that. So I dropped out of college and I auditioned for the show and um, made it. So I went to Las Vegas, which is where my uncle was based out of at that time, auditioned for the show, rehearsed for the show, went to Aruba for about three months where I did, we did seven shows a week. It was a fifties and sixties review. It was a lot of fun because our show was like an hour a night. So during the day, you know, we would get to, we'd lay out, uh, laid out on the beach. I mean, we were staying at a really nice hotel. We had a per diem. I had friends who came to stay with me. We all had our families who came to stay. So it was a really fun experience and um, we got extended. So we were able to stay longer than our original contract, which was a bonus. And then when I came back, I kept doing, uh, my uncle was a producer of special events. And so he would do like corporate shows. Um, I would fly from, I went back to college to try to finish because I like when I got back, it was kind of like, now what do I do? So I uh, needed to go back to school. And then um, because I was getting paid, it was it was actually, it was pretty good to be able to go to an airport, hop on a plane, do a show over the weekend and come back. So I did that uh, several times. And then uh, when I got out of college, I moved to Las Vegas. So it was kind of like a thing, like where I started off in college, I got into the entertainment business um, that I'd always been around. I mean, my sister and I, when we were little, we used to do things like, um, we would help my aunt make costumes. She was a seamstress and she designed and made all of this, the, um, the costumes for the uh, people that were my uncle's show. We would um, go to rehearsal. We would, my aunt would let us pick what costumes they were going to wear for that night, you know, that sort of thing. So we lived, you know, in hotel rooms. We just thought that was really exciting, a really exciting lifestyle. So I was always very comfortable around entertainment. So after I, I had started college, did a show, went back to a different school, graduated. Um, then I just moved to Las Vegas. It was like, that was kind of where I needed to go. My friends were there because I had been in the show with them. And then I thought, okay, well, I have my biology degree. So I um, tried to get jobs that were related to biology. I was in an interview with the coroner because I also was very interested in forensics. And the coroner was telling me, you know, like, you know, when you're, you know, working a case, you know, everybody, you know, you're really kind of around nothing but dead people, your family, some people kind of get worried about that. They get freaked out about it a little bit. And I started getting freaked out about it in the interview. So I just told him, I was like, I'm, I don't think we need to, I don't want to waste your time. I don't think I'm the right person for, <laughs> for this job. Um, my aunt um, had gone back to college and she'd gone back um, as an adult. She was over 40 years old and she met a woman who was a production assistant at the, M or, sorry, she was a production manager at the um, MGM and they were putting in a brand new show called Effects. And at that time it was uh, Michael Crawford was the star of the show. So they needed a production assistant. And so my aunt was like, well, I was like, well, I might as well do that. Cause I wasn't finding anything really outside of 
the Bureau of Land Management or the assistant to the coroner, which I already decided I was not going to be the right person to do that. And um, I really wasn't interested in land management or anything. So um, I thought, well, I'll just do this while, you know, while I'm trying to find like a real job. So I did all kinds of stuff, like from data entry to, you know, running around and getting everybody coffee to getting cars washed to, you know, whatever. Um, I enjoyed being a production assistant. It was different every day. I had long hours. I was around, I mean, like to sit in a theater and to sit somewhere where they were designing a show and like see the whole creative process and all that was a really a really fun time. And honestly, it was just something that, I mean, it was really easy tasks to do, but they needed somebody to do them. And, you know, so I would happily do anything anybody asked me to do. I think that there was a girl who was assisting the producer at the time and she was sick or something. And so they said they needed me to go over to the rehearsal hall uh, and take notes because they were having a meeting. And so at this meeting, it was like a table read of they did like all of the storyboards and they just kind of walked through the whole creative process and where they were with things. And so this, they flew everybody in from New York who was part of the show. So they had Natasha Katz, who was a lighting designer. They had Theoni Aldridge who designed the costumes, David Mitchell. Um, I mean, like it was all these like really big people and I was naive. I mean, I was, you know, 23 or 24. I was just taking notes. That's what my job was. And so I sat and took notes and I sat next to this guy who, you know, was kind of jabbing me in the ribs and kind of telling little jokes here and there. And I didn't know who he was either. And it turned out that was Michael Crawford. So I'd been in this meeting all day long with like everybody who was involved in the creative process of this show as they were going through things, taking notes of what everybody wanted done and how things were coming along, et cetera. And about two or three days later, I get a telephone call from um, the MGM and they said that Michael Crawford had called and asked that I would be his personal assistant. So I was really like over the moon, excited about that. And um, so I took that job. That's kind of like how I ended up like, you know, going toward like David, but when I took that job, it was like, okay, so now this is going to be a little bit more of a permanent thing because now we have you know, the show, the show's being installed, the show's going to open, you know, I'll be working at the MGM, you know, that sort of thing. Wow. I lucked into it. <laughs> How exciting for, for a young woman to have that opportunity. Yes. And I, so I'm also, I'm from a really small town um, and I'm talking to you right now from Ohio. So I live in a small town called Washington Courthouse and it probably has, I don't know, my uncle used to tease and say that my whole town um, if they put four people to a room, everybody who lived in my town could stay at the Excalibur at one time. So I'm from a small, right. So I'm from a small town. And so I think a lot of the things that had happened to me over the course of being in entertainment, it, like I was able to kind of recognize the opportunity and I'd been around entertainment a lot. So I had a very big comfort level there, but also, you know, those that wasn't missed on me that I had a really um, unique opportunity. If you're going to be a personal assistant to someone, you may as well start at the top. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, and the thing is, is that, um, as, as a 24 year old girl, you know, and like, that's my first job. And it's sort of like, you're saying like, oh my gosh, at the top. And like, people would just be like Michael Crawford, like the Michael Crawford. And he, you know, had been Phantom of the Opera. And then he had all these, I mean, I was naive and didn't know who he was in the first place. And then he came with 
all of these other fans who had known him from some mothers do have him and hello dolly you know he he was really well known to like a really broad audience and all of a sudden it just opened up this whole world i mean not just you know the united states it was people who traveled from all over to come and see him and people that i got to know because of it and some of some of i'm you know some of my very good friends are from around the world because of michael and david <laughs> they have this unique way of bringing so many people together Right. And, you know, at being 24 and being somebody who at that time I hadn't traveled outside of the United States. um, And then to see, you know, that understanding that when you travel like from one country to another and when people would come and see either one of them from outside, even if you were within the United States and you came to see them and you were in Las Vegas for a week, that meant that you were at every single solitary show for a week, you know, and I always thought that was kind of a unique I mean, you really have to like somebody quite a bit. It's not like going to a concert where they're only playing like one time and you go and you see them live. This is I'm in my seat at 730 and 1030, you know, for every show that they have while I'm here. Yeah. (laughs) What was it like to see a show like EFX suddenly be created from nothing? So that was really unbelievable. And I almost learned how unbelievable it was in a reverse order. So I'll, I'll qualify that with, I sat in the MGM, I mean, like with cords hanging from the ceiling with, you know, watching every, um, you know, every, like when they tried to focus the lights, I mean, and people standing on the stage and people and moving and how long that took and like, what a, a big process that was, you know, everything was being built in front of our eyes. And then when they started adding the automation for effects, like when, you know, like downstairs underneath, there was another, another story below kind of like a basement almost where these puzzle pieces I mean they came in on train track sort of things and came like the the stage opened and things came up from you know the bottom and um, you know the the fire breathing dragon and the fog wall you know the big head James Earl Jones was like this big you know head who was like the effects master Um, all of that stuff was really kind of like how Las Vegas does things like very big and overwhelming And that was my first experience of being, you know, in a showroom and having like, I mean, that's a lot of production. That's a lot of, you know, really over the top type stuff. And then um, it wasn't for several years that I did, didn't go to see a Broadway show. And when I saw a Broadway show and I was in a small theater and watched how creatively they took a small stage or a small stage, you know, according to my effects stage (laughs) perspective, um, creatively had to utilize every piece of that theater for, you know, creating their atmosphere. And we had all this space and we had things that came in from the fly and we had things that came in from the wings. I mean, um, that sort of made me open my eyes a lot too, to think like, wow, you know, I had no idea how big of a production that was kind of relative to say Broadway or something. And I'll never forget Michael Crawford would always say this about Las Vegas, like that over the top kind of a a piece. He said, if this show were on Broadway, he said the set changes would get standing ovations. And I think really what it was is that, you know, like in Las Vegas, people, you go there and all the hotels and the casinos and stuff, everything is so big and there's lights and bells and whistles on everything. And then, you know, you come out and like this humongous production had just taken place and people just would, you know, kind of sit there and clap. And he, you know, he just, he wasn't used to that piece of it. And not, not even from a, like not from a perspective that he thought he deserved a standing ovation, but he knew the difference of, you know, what it took and how many people it took to make a set change and to make, you know, every piece of the 
production work. <laughs> well, are you someone who really likes to understand the logistics of how a production mm-hmm. comes together? Yes. So being behind the scenes is is like your nirvana. Right. And I'll tell you, I, I say that a lot. Uh, my personality, I am I'm very outgoing and all of that. And I think that people think that like, I like to be in the front and I'm most comfortable. Like I would backstage. I'm like that. I'm, I'm, I'm the girl who's backstage. I like to be backstage. I don't like yes. to be on stage. I like to be backstage. <laughs> yes. yes. So that fits in a lot of areas. <laughs> yeah. But how did David come onto your horizon? Were you aware <laughs> of who he was? So when Michael left the show, Michael had um, had an injury and he left the show And so they went on for a little bit that we had understudies and all of that who had done the show for a bit. And then we had heard that David was coming and I had said to my mom, you know, who she was like, oh my gosh, you know, so uh, my mom was born in the same year that David was. I can tell you that I can remember the first time that I saw him because uh, he, he had come in, he came in to meet people. He came, and then he, you know, they, the MGM did all the stuff to get him settled and all that stuff. And then they had said to me, you know, I was already the star personal assistant. Did I want to be David's personal assistant? And so I said, you know, okay. I remember going into the showroom and um, when he was in effects, they had, we called it the flying disc, but like when he stood on the thing and it kind of like went across the stage and all that stuff, I just remember kind of going in and here he's flying on the, on the disc or whatever. And I was sitting kind of close to the front. He, I just remember him kind of swooping down kind of in front of me. And then there was nobody in the audience. There were only like, you know, production people in the house or whatever. So I was sitting up there with whoever was going to introduce me to him. And he just gave me a look and like all that kind of stuff. And um, I was like, okay, he's going to be all right. (laughs) He, you know, he just, um, and he, and he really was, he was, he was, um, he was, he was different that I had two different experiences and all that stuff, but I really, I was really, really close to David. And when he, when he just swooped down like there, I was like, okay, I kind of get like what this big deal about him is all about. He just had, you know, he had something about him that, you know, people, you swoon. (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So you, you're, um, you're not as old as some of us then. No. And so I really, I was just kind of under like that kind of being obsessed with, um, or like, a, and knowing him and like understanding the, all of the attention and what he was all about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a ringside seat to yes. what, what that was all about. What does the work of a personal assistant involve? I, well, I mean, I think it, it's a lot of different things. And like I said, like for, um, for David and for Michael, it was, um, it was different. Michael, Michael was in Las Vegas and he was there essentially kind of by himself. So he lived, um, you know, he lived in a house um, like a few miles from the strip and he didn't have anybody to do anything for him. So I would do grocery shopping. I would fill his car up with gas. Um, and then I would do things like, you know, coordinate if he had people that were coming in, um, if they were going to need to stay at the MGM, um, if they needed tickets, you know, those sorts of things. Um, it involved a lot of things of, you know, going through fan mail, coordinating and getting stuff ready so that like on whatever day that he would do stuff, I would leave it in his back, um, dressing room and let him, he would sign stuff and then I would put it all back together and mail it, that sort of thing. Um, for David. David had, um, I mean, he had folks that were like at his house. I mean, they had, they had Sue and Bo, and then they had a nanny, Judy. And so Judy did a lot of the stuff like the grocery shopping and, you know, those sorts of things. But for David, I would do 
kind of uh, making sure that he had all of the folks that were coming in, all of his tickets ready, managing things that, you know, in the dressing room. Um, both of them, I would order their food every night for dinner um, from Wolfgang Pucks, which was, you know, across the way, uh, right across the casino, and they would deliver it to the dressing room. Um, I mean, and it was just a little bit different all the time. And then um, when, I guess like when I worked for Michael or for David, when he was working at the MGM, you know, just calling and checking in and seeing like if he needed anything that day and then what time I would meet him at the theater. Um, same thing kind of for Michael. Sometimes I would go get the stuff I'd have to bring it to his house or sometimes I would just bring it in and make sure that it was in his car before he left or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it was a lot of stuff like for Michael at the end of the night, he would, um, he had his group of people who the dresser and his makeup artist, um, they would, after every change, he would come back and he would say things like he would have notes for every show. So it would be like if something happened during the show, like a missed cue or like any of that kind of stuff or things he thought could be tighter or whatever. So he would just make a list of all that stuff. And I would give that, I type it up and give it to um, the company manager at the end of the show or like the production folks, you know, at the end of the show, so they could go over it um, with their production crew or the um, dancers or anybody. Um, and, you know, Michael, it would, or David, um, it was a little bit more relaxed in the sense that it wasn't like that stuff, like every single, you know, solitary night only like if something major had happened or you know whatever but um it was whatever they whatever they kind of wanted um it was also um kind of being a more public face I mean like he couldn't see everybody they both couldn't see everybody who wanted to come and see them so I did a lot of you know meeting people and accepting things that they had that they would like gifts that they wanted to give and you know give it on their behalf and then coordinating if it was a thank you afterwards or you know that sort of thing but it was um for both of them, it was too much. They couldn't meet everybody who wanted and made that request. Um, it was like letting them know if certain people were there. I mean, for both of them, a lot of celebrities would come to see the show and then we would do stuff, you know, afterwards, we'd make sure that they got backstage afterwards so they would be able to see him after. Um, it just kind of depended. Um, I mean, it was a lot of um, confidentiality, a lot of, um, you know, just trying to be very empathetic and understand because you know, a lot of people were disappointed if they had traveled a really long way or if they really had, you know, waited a long time to try to see them and then they couldn't do it or, you know, whatever. So mm. um, I worked with Michael with um, his, he had a fan club. And so they would do a couple times a year um, fan club activities. Like, so they would do one time they did a birthday party and they did that at the MGM and he went to, um, to do that. And the fans were able to ask him questions and all of that stuff. So that was fun. Um, and then I did a lot of um, stuff like that with um, David had um, Barbara and for some reason I can't think of her last name at the moment, but she ran a fan club and a newsletter and all of that for him so I would, you know, if she had like things that she wanted sent in or pictures or you know any of that stuff so I went you know back and forth with her quite a bit as well. So you had specific requests from people who wanted to meet him for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Were there yes. any that you can recall that were very emotional? Uh, yeah, a lot, um, yeah, several. I mean, um, yeah, and I know, uh, and a lot of them came, I mean, with a lot of really, uh, yeah, lots of emotions attached. Uh, you know, um, somebody had come to see him who um, she had lost her son and her son's name was David and she had come to see him and um when I had to explain to her that he wasn't able to for other 
um, reasons and scheduling and all of that stuff, um, you know, she cried. And that was very hard because, you know, you want to say yes. And he wanted to say yes to everybody. But there's a lot of things that were out of his control sometimes that would prevent him from having to do that. So, yeah, I remember, I mean, I, I remember that it was it was disappointing to a lot of people to say no. I mean, I also had people that would question like, that if they gave me something to give to him, how do they know that they were getting, you know, that he was getting it? And I was like, well, because like right down the hallway is where I'm going to go and take it back. I mean, like I will give it to him. I mean, and I, you know, a lot of people wanted to present him with whatever they had brought and that wasn't always possible. It wasn't always possible. I don't think you really ever saw anybody before a show. Anyway, there was too much preparation for makeup and getting into costume and getting his mic sound checked and all of that stuff. Uh, so it just, it just wasn't always possible. And, you know, I had to try to do the best I could to make sure that people knew that I was um, giving him the messages that they wanted me to give him. I was giving him, you know, the gifts that they wanted me, that they were presenting to me to give to him. I know that I was not the next best. I know that I was not the next, the next best thing. I, it was not what they had wanted to do. <laughs> what did those gifts and these encounters with, with fans mean to him? Did he understand and appreciate just how much he meant to people? Do you know, he really did. He, um, a lot of times, I mean, he, some, some people would give him stuff that he'd never seen before or like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that this still existed or, you know, that, you know, people collected things and would give it to him or people made things and would give it to him. And he was very appreciative. Mm -hmm. of what they had done. He was appreciative of how far they had traveled to come and see him. And, you know, it also was not cheap to come and see that show. And so like, if you're flying and you're coming to Las Vegas and you're staying in Las Vegas and you're coming to see every show, you know, that's, that's a lot of, um, a lot of personal investment on top of something that you're, you know, going to be giving to him. That is something that either you collected or that you loved enough, you know, to give to him for a special reason. So yeah, that was, that wasn't wasted on him at all. Oh, that's, that's really nice to know mm -hmm. because I, I know so many fans want to know, did right. you really un understand how much he inspired me, how much right. he influenced me. And I think with his passing, people had lost that opportunity to say, thank you. Right. Because I think right. that mattered so much right. to, to, to so many. But he, but he was also, I mean, he was easy to look after. I mean, and, you know, not like, I mean, there were things, you know, that he would do. I remember I'd pick him up from the airport sometimes and like uh, in Las Vegas, he would just like get off the plane and like walk out, you know, and I'd pick him up and take him home because he lived so close to the airport. And then on the way home, he would be like, oh, he said, well, after you get here, you're going to have to go back to the airport and park and go in and get my luggage. So he'd have like and a flight attendant who would take his luggage to the office and then like, cause he didn't want to wait. So I, I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, so those, those, I mean, he was, he could be difficult, but I mean like that in the scheme of things, it's not that difficult. And I would always be like, okay. <laughs> right, right, right. What were the um, audiences like? If you can make a comparison between Michael and David, I imagine there must've been times when you and others may have been afraid that fans would be rushing the stage or if he went out into the audience anxious to grab him. That was a big difference between the two of them anyway, was I, Michael, David kind of started his show like in the audience. He was, um, you know, he played a bus boy at the beginning. And so he started inside the audience. Um, and Michael really never was that close 
to the audience. And I know that, you know, we had ushers and security and all of that stuff in there. And there was a difference um, because I think with, um, with Michael, a lot of his fans were a little bit more, or yeah, his fans were a little more reserved. Um, and, you know, they're just, there was a different demographic, you know, for each one of them. And I think that, um, but I'm trying to think at, um, at effects, I don't think it was really, um, I don't know. I don't remember any like instances, like where people were really kind of afraid or any of that. I, but I do know, you know, once people had come to see the show and they knew where David was and where he started, it was sort of like, then people started as soon as those tickets would go on sale, that's where they wanted to sit. They wanted to sit somewhere where he was going to appear. And I think that, um, he was, when he played Houdini, there was another part where he, um, ended up in the audience. Um, as part of the illusion. Uh, so people had, you know, gotten into like, know what, what those seats were and where they wanted to be so that they could be close to him. <laughs> I mean, at the Rio, when he did the, the, at the, um, the show at the Copa and he'd go through the audience and sing, I think I love you. I mean, that was, that was another one of those things where people, they started, you know, they wanted their seats up close because they knew that he would snake through the audience and sing that song. <laughs> And, but I think like more for like when David, when David was on the road, like when we would do concerts and stuff, that was a more of a feel of like where people would really want to be closer. And he was able to extend and kind of shake hands and, you know, do that kind of stuff. So that was a little bit of a different atmosphere rather than people being in their seats, like in a theater. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is where at the concert, it would become more of a concern because yes. it would be like being at a concert in the seventies where you would just rush the stage. Right, right. Yeah. And even like when when he would do concerts that were inside hotels and stuff and and rooms, that helped with the vibe anyway. I mean, you know, because people would kind of like come up and there was always security that was there. But I mean, he did, you know, he would shake hands and people would give him gifts like personally, you know, flowers or little teddy bears or you know any anything that they wanted to give him. I mean, he, he would come back with things that people actually were able to personally hand to him more of in a concert type atmosphere from your point of view because you weren't uh, around to witness the Cassidy mania in the 1970s did it surprise you this outpouring of love and affection all these years later and did it surprise him how did it affect him at the MGM I can remember um, he would he'd be hired to do things like to make other appearances and there was like studio 54 that was within the MGM and so sometimes somebody that he'd be like asked to make an appearance to go to studio 54 or whatever. And if we were in the theater and we, or if we were in the hotel and we were walking like from the theater to studio 54, you just couldn't do it all backstage. And so he'd have to walk through the casino. And so we'd have um, security with us. Um, But I can remember one time like walking back and people just recognizing him and we were standing side by side and people just started to kind of swoop in on top of us. And I was not used to that, like at all. And he looked at me and he just, he put his arm around me and he said, he said, look at me. So I looked at him and he, we were, you know, he had his arm around me and he said, just keep walking. We'll just keep walking. He said, I mean, we just keep walking. He said, if we're talking and we're walking, you know, we'll, we'll be just fine. And so that's what we did. And we had security with us, but it was really funny because all of a sudden it was like, once people started to recognize it was him, people started to, you know, come closer and, you know, that sort of thing. And that was, I felt a little vulnerable. I had traveled with him to um, Salt Lake City. He went to do 
uh, when he had an album that was out, he um, he went to do it like a handful of things, uh, like a Secretary's Day event at a Hard Rock. Um, and at at the time, people could come back to the gate where planes, you know, when you deplane. And so we got off and there were all these people waiting. And as soon as he got off, everybody was like clapping for him. And of course, so he flew first class and I did not fly first class. So he got off and he had to wait for me. <laughs> So, um, and he was there, they had security and they had, um, they had hired a limo driver. So um, anyway, we walked through the airport, like with, I mean, a whole trail of people, you know, following. And so he'd done his events and then we went, we stopped and ate somewhere. And we had this, uh, the guy, there was a guy that was with us. I think he, he was a limo driver and he ate lunch with us. And we sat at this restaurant that had glass windows kind of around like all like three sides. And I laughed because I would, we'd be eating and I would look up and there were people like, you know, looking in, you know, like this. And I was like, oh my God, like they're just watching him eat, you know? So um, he, there, there, I mean, there were like quite a bit of those things. <laughs> I, I can imagine them going into the restaurant afterwards and saying, can I have that plate? Right, right. Yeah. It, well, and I think that like you would hear stories of that. And, you know, and the thing is, is that I, I will say this, uh, when we went on tour um, in like, um, when he, so he, I'd been with him through effects and then he opened at the Copa and then we kind of just did concerts all around Harris properties, um, for a year. And then we went to the UK and he, when he went to the UK, that's where, um, I really, I would sit back and I would watch him. He'd go out and he was really, really adored. I mean, I, I have a vision and I don't remember which, where we were. Cause in, in that tour coming from backstage, he was in a, um, he played a, a, a venue that had like, it was like in a U and then it had a balcony too. I walked out and just, I just listening and people just, I mean, like just yelling when he came out and like, I, I just was blown away. I it, like that made me emotional and made me think like, I mean, that has to be so wonderful for him to walk out and to be like that adored, like, yeah. and appreciated and all that. Yeah. It but was, he sounded good. I mean, oh. he, he was in, he was in really good. He was, yeah, a good frame of mind, good everything. Yeah. He would walk out and people would just go crazy. And I would be, I just, I remember like just being really like very proud of him thinking like, oh my gosh, like this is, you know, what it is. And what was interesting about it was, is that it was a different, you know, playlist. He, I think songs that were popular in the UK were not the ones that were popular in the United States. And so that was fun because I was exposed to a lot of his music and, you know, had an appreciation for how talented he was and how beautiful his voice was and all of that. But, you know, on the road in the UK was where we had to have, you know, he would have to, he'd do an encore and then um, people would be prepared maybe for a second encore, but that was him getting in a car and leaving because, um, I mean, I think he was really, there, there was more, it was, it was more obvious to me that I think people that were his fans in the UK were very, very they, re they really, really adored him. I think one of the reasons, I mean, apart from the fact everybody loved him and adored him, we never really saw him with the Partridge family baggage here. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. When he first came here, the Partridge family had been on TV for about three months and then it had been taken off. So when he arrived, he'd come from a holiday in Italy where he'd been traveling around Europe and he had a long coat on and furry boots and he was a rock star was mm -hmm. nothing like the character he was playing right. in the tv series that is what made so many people fall in love with him I think that yeah that and that makes sense 
And so consequently, as you were saying, a lot of the set list would not be necessarily Partridge Family music. And it certainly wasn't to a large degree in the 1970s. It was Eric Clapton, five minute drum solos, guitar solos, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Chicago. It was a bit like saying, here I am. This is what I can do. Right. Get about the image that you've been sold. This is really me. But going back to Vegas, after all that adulation that he'd had in the 1970s, which completely unparalleled, you know, I suppose you can only put into into that um, Elvis, the Osmonds, Michael Jackson. Was Vegas all about acceptance for him? I think Vegas was, I mean, he was in this huge show. He was a star of this like huge show. I think it was kind of a mesh of his talent, his Broadway, like the acting, the singing, like all of that stuff, like all together. And I think, you know, he, he was very, very popular in Las Vegas in the show. And Las Vegas was a place at the time that he was there where he would always say, where else can you go in the world where like within a mile radius, you have like all of these like really big celebrities. So it would be people. um, It was, I think probably a little bit prior to people having Um, residencies at hotels, but it would be like that they would be coming in for a concert or a couple of shows. So you would have, you know, like some of the hotels that had arenas could have, you know, Elton John or Cher. And then you've got David who's here the whole time and um, having to sell out shows six nights a week. That's a, I mean, that's, that's a lot to do. And he was, you know, he was able to do all of that. So I think that speaks a lot for, um, you know, his validity and talent and, you know, how much he loved his audiences and how much they loved him you know that sort of thing I think that that was really a successful piece of his history and especially to be able to do it kind of like later in a career yes yeah it was like the reinvention which he Mm -hmm. did exceedingly well every time he did anything new right be it the theater be it you know blood brothers be it in films on television although that was a bit earlier with police story and Mm -hmm. undercover series but there was just something almost Pied Piper like about him you talk about Mm -hmm. him being people flocking to him as he walked through a casino yeah people followed him everywhere there Mm -hmm. was almost something spiritual about right right and I think there was there was there whatever it was that he had like whatever the like the it factor I mean it was it really was, it was talent. It was looks, it was personality. It was, I mean, like all of this through, when you think of somebody who's had all of that, all of those experiences that he's had, and particularly like, you know, from a a really young age, he really, he just was a, he was a very good person. He like, there were a lot of really great things about him and about his personality and about who he was that didn't get too out of control because of the level of celebrity he was or something. You know, I think like at the end of the day, he liked people and he liked to perform and he liked, you know, he liked a lot of things and didn't take things for granted. This unconditional love. He often said in interviews, I never feel worthy of it. Could you understand that? Yeah. Cause I think there was so, it, it was so much and it was so constant and all of that. I mean, I think that a lot of times um, it would be, in a good way, overwhelming. And then probably that's like his way of saying like, what did I do to deserve all of this? Like, you know, that it, he, he kind of always felt like very, very, very appreciative of, of it. And again, like the, for the longevity of it, I mean, it really, it didn't fade. I mean, even now, 
I mean, the love for him is overwhelming. The things right. that fans do in right. his memory. People feel they need to do something. It, in many ways, it brings them closer to him. Well, I can tell you, like for, for me, I was in touch with him, um, you know, until he passed. And I mean, you know, different things, like I would get a call on my birthday from him. I would get texts, you know, for on Mother's Day, I would call him on his birthday, Christmas, you know, different things. He was, um, he was somebody who he would say, if there's anything I could do for you, please, if there's anything I could ever do for you, you know, like, you know, call me, you know, whatever. And he, he meant it to this day. Like if I'm feeling blue or, you know, anything else, you know, I, I tell, um, looking to see if she's in I don't think she's here Alexa I'm like Alexa play songs by David Cassidy like I want to hear his voice I have you know a CD in my car and okay she heard me Alexa stop <laughs> she's playing cherish <laughs> one second Alexa stop <laughs> I'm like as much as I would like to hear that it, it, it's um it's a little distracting while I'm trying to like think I didn't even know that Cherish was such a big song of David's and then I mean I can remember like if, when I hear Cherish and I know that that's the name of your book and then that's what had come up uh, when Alexa uh, started playing it I'm like it, that takes me like right to the Rio and I'm like every like every now and then like I think like I heard him sing I think I love you I heard him sing Cherish I heard him sing you know and even Sheena you know she she had her songs that like you would hear every every single night and you have to kind of step back and think like some people don't get to see it live or hear it live or you know whatever you know songs can transport you back to to that moment it's like smells or like anything I mean oh, it, yeah absolutely it's the yeah. power of music it's the power of the presence of these idols you know I'll listen to him like if I'm feeling blue or any of that stuff because I want because I want to feel connected to him and it's really since he's passed it's been um it's weird to think of living in a world where he isn't if that and, it, and it's 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 hard to explain there's not a lot of um it's just it, I don't know like he it really had a big effect on me when he passed away and I mean I, I miss him like crazy because there really was nobody else like him I mean I went through things personally uh, when I was working for him I went through a divorce and different things and I mean I can remember he this is the kind of person that he is is that if I was having a really hard time which was for a while um, he would, if I went in, you know, to do anything or I would bring him tea in the morning or any of that kind of stuff. And he would say, just like, sit here for a second, you know, how are you? And this, and it would ask me and he would be like, you know, I just don't understand it. Like, you know, he can't see the forest through the trees. And I mean, he was just somebody who, if I had to say, you know, that you have people that are in your corner, like he was, he was in my corner and instrumental in helping me get over things. I mean, and you know, some of the hardest times I ever laughed was with him. I mean, I remember being at Lake Tahoe in this like downstairs dressing room and it was like, you know, a pink sink and a pink toilet and a pink bathtub. And, you know, um, he was, we were getting ready, like at the end of the show, I was taking his shoes off and different things. And I was, I'm like, basically like on the floor, like looking up at him. And I just said to him, I said, you know, he always, he told me that my hometown, he called it Four Corners and he would say, I looked at him, I said, I'm like, I'm just a girl from Four Corners. I'm like, you have no idea like what it means, like, like this is a really neat opportunity that I have. And I love being on the road and I love being with the people that we were with. And it, all of that had to do with him. I mean, he, he had a knack about, um, you know, being around the right people and being with the right people and, but he, you know, surrounded by talented people and good people. And, you know, there, 
those are really, really, you know, I just told him, I said, these are the times of my life and I, I know it. <laughs> mm, yes. yes. Well, what did you learn from him? Oh boy. Um, oh, that's a good question. I think I, what I learned from him was, yeah, I guess kind of like not to take things for granted. I mean, I think, I mean, I really do think that he held all of the the adoration and support and all of that. I mean, I think that he held that very dear to his heart. I think that those, his fans and, you know, people coming to see him day after day after day, I mean, no matter what he did, like you said, I mean, it was people who would watch his TV show, they watch films, they'd watch his, you know, the biography, they would buy his albums, they would buy his books, you know, any of that stuff. And I think that it was um, all of that. And I think also um, like change. I mean, he accepted change in a lot of ways in the sense of he could, he would do it on Broadway. He would do it, you know, whatever. And he overextended himself quite a bit, but I think it was, he gave a lot because he got a lot. Did you learn from those experiences and take them into your career as you moved on to other things? I think so. I think I had a lot of experience, like with logistics. I think I had a lot of experience with uh, trying to be resourceful, you know, like if, you know, he wanted something, I, you know, find a way to get it. Um, I took a lot of like, be, you know, being able to be diplomatic. I had a lot of experience, you know, in doing that because like I'd mentioned earlier, I, I wasn't always delivering good news to people, you know, to come and see him and stuff. And I think that it helped mold me into being empathetic, like, you know, and trying to be understanding of, you know, how people felt about what they were doing, like to give him something or to do something. And here I was having to say that it wasn't possible today or different things. So I think that I took a lot of things with me. And I think, um, I mean, he really was, he really did care. He just, he cared about people. And I mean, that was, that was really good to see because there was, he had so many different types of people who cared and adored for him. And, um, I will say too, I mean, working for a celebrity isn't always easy. I mean, there, there are some unrealistic expectations, I think, you know, when, um, you know, there, you, you're not like uh, a quote, like normal person in the sense that if I need something, I have to go out and get it. And if he would need something, he has people that can go get it for him, you know, type of thing. And I don't even think that in those circumstances that it was, that that was taken for granted. I mean, I think that he had things early on in his career that, really would have made it difficult for him to go and do lots of things by himself. And he probably would have if he could have. <laughs> Are you the type, type of woman who, when faced with a challenge, you say, right, I'm going to find a way of doing this? I try to. And especially if it's something I really believe in. I mean, um, I am persistent, you know, kind of try to like stay on track and try to figure out a way to make it happen. So, yeah, I think so. Can you take us on on the journey from the time that you stopped working with David? But mm -hmm. before that, was that a difficult decision for you to make? The reason that I didn't um, stay with him, I was asked when he left, he moved to Florida. And so at the time he moved to Florida, I had just purchased my first house. Um, so I was like, I wasn't ready to leave. Uh, I was um, almost done with getting my master's degree at UNLV. It was, I mean, it was hard not to go with him because um, had he stayed in Las Vegas, I mean, I would have stayed with him. I mean, I don't think, I don't see myself ever like leaving, but I just wasn't ready to move or any of that stuff. And so uh, that's why I stayed back. Um, and that was hard. I mean, I, when he, when he left, I did miss him. And I'll tell you the fun, the fun thing about like having worked for him and having a great relationship with him was that um, anytime he was around, I mean, I got to see him in concert several times because 
He would play somewhere um, in uh, the Los Angeles area. He would play somewhere in Chicago. And I would be, I'd say to my mom, hey, meet me in Chicago. You know, my mom lives here in Ohio. So we'd meet in Chicago. Um, so that was, that was fun because I always got to see him or like, sometimes he would come back, he'd come back to Las Vegas and do um, he'd be like, you know, I'm going to be in, um, I'm going to be in the rat pack, like on, you know, Saturday night or whatever. And so I'd be like, okay. Um, I had one time where I didn't even come and see the show. I met him like backstage after he got done. And basically like, I drove him from my car to his car and we sat there and kind of had like this and like caught up for like, you know, four or five minutes. And then he had to get on a plane, you know, so I took him to his car and he went back to the airport. So like, I always felt connected to him, even though, um, you know, we weren't in the same city all the time or whatever. Um, and, but if he would have been there and he would have still been doing entertainment and all that stuff, I probably would have never left. <laughs> but when he said he was leaving, I was, uh, I belonged to an organization um, called the International Live Events Association, and it's known as ILEA. Um, so I do special events. And so like I do planning and logistics and all of that. So I um, had just mentioned to somebody, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. David's like leaving in a couple of weeks and he's moving to Florida. And so she was somebody that I knew from ILEA. And she said, she said, I have an off-premise um, catering company come and work for me. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so I did that. And um, that was more of like a sales position and stuff. And so, um, but it was, it, that was really great experience. It was, um, it was really hard work. It was um, really enjoyable because, um, you know, that would be like from a birthday party to an open house to, you know, some kind of, you know, showcasing model homes and stuff for Pulte homes or something. So, I mean, I had, a, that was a lot of variety and different things. So I did that. It just turned out I wasn't that good of a salesperson. Like I said, I like to be behind the scenes. So there was that. Um, and so I did that for, uh, I want to say I did that for like maybe a year and a half and then, um, got an opportunity to work at UNLV as, um, the events manager for the UNLV foundation. And so that was doing events for the colleges and for the foundation and recognizing donors, um, you know, at various levels and, um, and things. So I did that for maybe five years and then moved over to the hotel college at UNLV. And I had gotten my master's degree from the College of Hospitality in 2005. And um, so I was an alumna of that program. And so I was asked by a, fr a good friend of mine. Now she was, she was my boss after I had moved over and we're still very good friends. So I had done, I did that for about five years before I moved to Ohio. Uh, and I moved to Ohio because um, that's where I'm from. And I have, um, I had my son in 2011 and then I met, or I say maybe re-met my current husband in 2013. Um, we had graduated together. And every time I would come home for the holidays, like a group of our friends would all get together and people from our class. And we sat, like we had one friend in between us or whatever. So we got reacquainted. And uh, that was at the end of December. And in February, the next, he came to see me in Las Vegas and I moved back here <laughs> wow. and, um, and David knew that like when I got engaged, um, David had texted me and he said, I heard that you got engaged. And I said, yes. Yeah. So I had sent him a picture and he said, um, he said, make sure he knows that he's the luckiest man on the face of the planet or something. So I would always say to my husband, I'm like, David Cassidy says, you're very lucky. <laughs> oh, isn't that fabulous? Yeah. And then, um, so I worked at, um, Ohio state, uh, from like for seven years 
And um, I recently had gotten my uh, real estate license and all that. So, and I have another change. Um, and so this is, this is brand new. Right down the road from where I live is an assisted living and they do, um, oh, they do uh, like a nursing home and rehabilitation and all of that stuff. So they've got a couple of communities here in my hometown and they needed somebody to help with their um, events and all that stuff. And so I was like, this sounds really interesting. So I had applied and I actually start that tomorrow. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I'm still ever changing. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. Have you always been career minded? Because I know that one of your most fulfilling achievements was becoming a mother. Yes. I mean, I have been career oriented. I think just like if I'm doing something I like and I'm interested in and all that stuff, that feels really good to me. Um, and especially like now that my, now that my son is, he's 10. And so that he was like my greatest accomplishment. And then, you know, when, um, when my husband Scott and I got together, you know, we blended family. So I have, um, a 24 year old son as well. And, um, so he is, um, he's, he's one of my biggest blessings too. So to be able to, you know, for him to, to be, um, affiliated to me is, um, is really amazing he's gone through college and different things. So it's been kind of interesting because, you know, I had like a baby and I, and then, you know, skip ahead and Jordan's like 16 years older than Jack. So that's, um, or 14 years older than Jack, but anyway, it's, um, it's, that's been really, it's been interesting, um, to have boys like at those at different ages, because I kind of like went from like having a two-year-old and then all of a sudden I have a 16 year old too. And I was like, I don't know what to do. So like, so being a mom is really important, but I knew as being a single mom, when I had Jack, I always knew that I would have to continue working. So, um, I think that it really just was like, kind of like, I just knew that that was going to be a way of life that I would, that I would have to. And even though that I have the opportunity now that I don't have to work, if I, I mean, we, like I didn't, I, it's not, not a complete necessity. I do like the independence and, um, you know, being able to you know, provide and, you know, all of that stuff. So I guess I probably always have been, but um, no regrets about having, having a baby. That's for sure. He's, he, that was, that was a really big deal and something I'm really, I'm, I'm very proud of. Yeah. I wondered if you wanted to share your emotional journey of how you became a mother. Oh, sure. I, I'd be happy to do that. Okay. Well, and this is funny. So, and I did while I was pregnant, I did, I saw David two times, I think while I was pregnant. So he knew, and I have a picture. I did. I have a picture of David holding um, Jack when he was a baby. I had been married, like I mentioned before, when I was working for David. And then I had mentioned that he had um, been very supportive of me as I was going through a divorce that just made me not want to be in a relationship or anything for a really long time. And as I was approaching 40, I always knew that I did want to be a mom. So um, I had just gone in for like a regular appointment um, with my, uh, with my doctor. And he, I said, you know, I really like, I just, I, I want to be a mom. And he said, well, here, he just wrote me down and made a referral to a fertility center. And he said, go, you know, go here. They're really great. They do a lot of research and different things, but you know, did you know you could do that on your own and you know, whatever. So I, I went and um, Dr. Donishmond and he was at the time at the Las Vegas Fertility Center. I walked in there and it was just really kind of refreshing because it wasn't even like it was a strange request or any of that stuff. I just had gone in. I was like, I'm about to turn 40. And if I don't do it now, you know, it'll be too late. And, um, oh, here's a book. Here's a place. This is who we use, you know, California cryobank. This is, you know, you can go through, you can search, you know, whatever. So I went through, um, a whole process of, um, like searching for an anonymous donor and, um, 
I know people spend a whole lot of time on it. It was very easy for me. I, um, I, this, this one, one number, one donor number kept popping up. I did like three or four searches and this one came up and I was like, okay, he, like, this is, this is the one. And, um, I went through one cycle of, um, IUI, which is the, um, insemination and that was unsuccessful. And that goes back to my biology piece. I was, I told the, the doctor beforehand, I said, I, I didn't want to do, um, in vitro because I was like, I don't want to manipulate, you know, I believe, you know, in like Charles Darwin and like all this stuff. I said, I want to manipulate it too much. And so when I wasn't pregnant through IUI, he said, it still kind of is, you know, natural selection. He goes, because we'll still take like the best sperm and we'll still take the best egg and put it together. So, and so I was like, okay, I, you know, I was sad (laughs) that I hadn't been pregnant. So I um, did one round of in vitro and um, got pregnant and had one pregnancy through that. So um, that's how I became a single mother by choice. And um, that was, yeah, that was, I had a lot of really uh, outstanding support from my parents. My parents were so happy to be, um, you know, grandparents. And then um, I had a great support system in Las Vegas too. Um, And probably like two days after I moved back to Ohio, my dad told me I was never allowed to move again. I'm stuck here. <laughs> it's just wonderful for you. I'm I'm so pleased. I have friends who have been through similar experiences and well, one of them in particular was never successful at all. Right. Well, um, and, and that is a it's a very emotional um I mean that was tough. And I was very grateful. I only had to go through it two times, but I that's a different type of an emotional journey that um it it yeah, that's that's a lot to go through and then to not be successful and all that. And, you know, I think I've been really grateful for the fact that, um, you know, having my older son too, because I always wanted to have more than one child. And so to have two and to have, you know, one that wasn't like born from me, but like, know that you can love them just the same. I mean, like that's, there's something really amazing about that too. I mean, I can tell you that I really don't feel like I wish I would have had more kids or done that differently. But what I, I will say that like going through the process of having um, Jack is that I think like he kind of really opened up my heart, you know, to, for, I mean, you know, you have a baby and like, oh my gosh. And I, I, I figured I would never be married again or any of that stuff. And my husband and I teased because the first night that we met, like both of us were like, oh, I can tell you one thing, I'm never getting married again. And I was like, <laughs> oh, me either, you know, so never say never. So I think it was more about the timing of, um, I mean, my, like my biological clock was ticking and if I did, if I didn't just go for it, it was never going to happen. Um, uh, but I would have rather that it happened that way so that, you know, that we ended up like with the family that we have rather than, you know, kind of settling for something maybe that wouldn't have been right for me otherwise. So, um, it just really was more about, I got to do it or else my body won't let me do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful for you, Robin. I'm so pleased yeah. that it worked out. Yeah. That's, that's yeah thank you. Well, and for my parents too, you know, my mom and dad are like overwhelmed and I have a sister and she's, um, she wasn't able to have kids. So they just, they had Jack. And then when Scott and I got together and then we have, you know, Jordan and Jack and, you know, my mom and dad were like really, you know, pleased about that and having another grandson and yeah. Yeah. Sometimes things are supposed to happen. Yeah. And they work, they, they work out. Yeah. Yeah. David once said that he had a, an inner strength that helped him through his difficult times. Were, were you ever aware of him calling on that inner strength that may not have been visible to other people? Things that stick out to me are things 
when I first had started working for him, I think he did a, a behind the music for VH1. He did a behind the music episode. And I can remember like at that point, there were people, like he had mentioned that there were, um, you know, times in his life where he'd had to reinvent himself. And one time he was talking about how he was he, like, it's, I'll try to quote, like quote it. It was similar to, he said, I was really low. And he said, how low was I? He said, I was so low. I was licking the curb. Like then at that point in time, like thinking of him from, I didn't know of him like at that point, but like knowing of him, like now having, you know, being in a show in Las Vegas and all that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously knew that that was in him. Um, I mean, I did see transitions in the sense of, you know, he was, he opened shows. I mean, and he had, um, you know, with um, the Rat Pack is Back was a really fun show. I think a version of it still exists. Um, I think I saw it actually in January of 2020, right before I had made a visit to Las Vegas and um, got to see some of my friends who were still in the show. So I know like that there was that I know that I mean, he like when things weren't going like the way that he wanted them, then it was like a transition. It was, you know, like if uh, like the show at the Copa, if he wasn't going to do that, then we went and started doing the tours. And so the tours went well. And then, you know, he went to the UK more than once. Um, you know, and some of those, uh, you know, I can go back and watch the video that they had put, produced, I think on the second tour that he did in the UK, that was like, I mean, just really amazing. And like looking at him and thinking that's where he should be. I mean, he was on stage and it was, I mean, the music was great. The musicians were great. He sounded great. You know, it was a very well-produced show, you know, that sort of thing. So I think other than like, if things weren't going one way that he did like make him go another way and he would come out on top, I think. How important was Vegas to him? Would he have stayed there if the opportunities had presented themselves? At the time that he was there, I mean, he was kind of like at the beginning of like that, the way that they were bringing back Las Vegas with, I think that there was a perception for a while that it was uh, like a graveyard for entertainers, kind of like where your career goes to die. And I think he was like on that uptick of when they were bringing people back to kind of revive all of that and to um, have really big entertainers and stuff there all the time. Vegas is a, it's, um, it's an interesting place. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if he would have, I don't, yeah, I don't know how to answer that. Cause I think that, I think that he was really happy being on the road. I mean, I think that that was, that was a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun. Like instead of everybody coming to see him, he got to go to different places and like around the world. And I think it was almost like, like ending up kind of like how he had started, like with, you know, the, with concerts and all that stuff. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I know he, you know, he had that, the love of horses and all that kind of stuff. Vegas is kind of a, it's a weird, interesting place. I mean, like if you live there, it's different than if you visit there and not in a bad way, it's like just more of a normal place than if you're just coming and staying on the strip and going to shows and that sort of thing. I mean, you know, he had, his son went to a public school and, you know, all of those types of things. Um, So it was a really kind of normal experience in that way. I mean, I know that he had left LA and places because of he'd been through the earthquake and that sort of thing. So I know that that was somewhere maybe that he didn't want to, to be, I don't know. I I think if I had to guess, he'd probably if you were going to do anything else, you'd be around horses. <laughs> I used to go and get daily racing forms for him um, from a couple of, for a couple of horse tracks. Um, he, I would keep track of like the horses that he owned and things like the jockey club, there were certificates and all that kind of stuff, but I was never around him when he was around right. horses. Could you share your thoughts on how you felt when you heard about his passing? 
I think my last exchange with him would have been probably February earlier that year. And I think I'd reached out a couple of times um, from him, like after the Dr. Phil show had aired in the United States and different things. And um, he, he had said like, I'm, I'm fine, you know, don't worry about me, you know, that sort of thing. And then, you know, like, as you see stuff afterwards, you're like, you know, I, he wasn't, and I don't know, you know, that there also don't know that there was much anybody could have done. I mean, you know, because, you know, of where, of where he was and things, but I, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it is, it's really sad. Um, I was getting on a cruise ship. I was doing something for um, work, maybe February ish. I had been in Florida, but, um, and just that, oh, I was landing in Florida and was just thinking about him. And so we just texted a little bit back and forth. And then I think I really never heard much after, you know, any of that. So my husband is a huge Ohio State football fan. And so we were at a game and it was a night game. I can, you can hardly get, there's so many people like there's a hundred thousand people that are in the stands. And so you could hardly get like Wi-Fi and messaging and all of that. And my phone started kind of like going off and I was like, I didn't know what it was. And um, I had a couple of people like they had just heard that he'd been um, admitted to the hospital and different things. So I was unaware of how bad, you know, the situation was. And I do remember, um, you know, trying to reach out to a few people that I knew, but I, I, I was sitting there and I just started crying because, you know, like I just kind of felt very far away and like, you know, like trying to figure out what was going on. And I really didn't have access to be able to do that. And so my husband was like, do you want to like, do you want to leave? And I was like, well, I mean, I can't do anything like at this moment. So we stayed. And then like, you know, on the way home, I tried to gather some pieces together or whatever and um, had, you know, tried to figure out if I could go and see him or, you know, whatever. But I know, you know, I just said, or I don't even have to be there. Can I help? Like, is there anything I can help with, you know, with anybody in the family or any of that? And um, I know he died a few days after that. And so um, I was, I was really very, very, very sad. Um, I have, for, for me, I feel glad. Um, I was, I was worried about him for a while. I know that, um, you know, he was struggling and I'm very, it gives me peace that he was like all of his brothers came back that, you know, that Sue and Bo, like that he was able, Sue, Bo, Katie, like that he was able to leave, um, you know, knowing that they, that they were all there around him. And, you know, I know that he was kind of cognizant of them being there and that sort of thing. So for me, I think that if you were going to leave, that at least he left at peace with all of those important relationships to him. And, um, you know, I know, I know how he felt about me and he knows how I, he knew how I felt about him. So I knew that those were the most important pieces to him and for him to be able to pass peacefully with reconciliation and, you know, things and, um, people being able to say the things to him and him say the things to them that needed to be said, that was important to me. And that gives me a lot of comfort. Knowing that he was at peace. Right. And knowing that love is the most important thing in everyone's lives and to have mm -hmm. that with you when, yes, when you transition to, to, to another. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I know that, um, I mean, you know, like the, the addiction and like, you know, wherever, whatever place he was in was not a good place um, before that. And I think the, him being able to, I mean, he, he deserved to leave with that sort of peace and knowing that there was love on his way out. <laughs> he, he did, he deserved that. Yeah. And I'm glad for them. I'm glad for all of them that he, that, that that was able to happen. Probably more love than he would ever have realized. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I mean, I'm just glad that it was, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that he wasn't, um, alone or that it, you know, that it was, I mean, it was a very sad story, but I mean, I think it, it, it had the, um, opportunity to be worse. And I think that, um, there's some pieces that people who loved him and knew him, you know, can take away from him leaving in that way that, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's the most important thing, you know, and, and history will remember him well. Yes. Yes, I what, think so too. But what is your most fondest memory? Oh, I have, I have, I do have a lot of memories. And so one of them mm-hmm. is really more centered. The one I shared earlier is more centered around me and like telling him like that. I knew that this was, you know, the time of my life, but I mean, um, I, I had, I had a lot of like, I mean, really like fun, fun memories. He was, he was very easy to get along with and I was around him, you know, I was around him a lot we had a good relationship. I mean, I remember, um, I mean, like his laugh, you know, those sorts of things, but I can tell you that when, when I do think of him and I like that thing I was telling you earlier, like about him being in my corner, I mean, th- there's a lot of things to the, ex- all the experiences and stuff that I had with him. When we flew to Salt Lake city, he was, he just was, that was the first time I, it was just he and I traveling because I just went to help assist with things like when, um, he went to do the signings and like all that stuff. And I was going through, I was going through my divorce at the time. And so I was really like, not in a good frame of mind, like to travel somewhere and like, you know, for the two of us, you know, to, to be there. And he was just so different kind of like on the road. It wasn't like, it wasn't like super serious because we were going into like a big production or that he had to do a show or, you know, any of that stuff. And he was just going in for interviews and he was going in to do, I, that might've been a thing um, where he was doing um, the, uh, uh, like an assistance type thing. I don't, he it was, and he was, I don't know, signing autographs and stuff for a new album, like all this. It was just a lot of like fun, but time consuming piece. And he told stories like the whole time. It was just all these things he was remembering about when he was in Kentucky and he was telling a story, you know, he just, and he would laugh and laugh and laugh. I can remember this is, this is very funny. We, so on the way back, he looked at me and he said, this is, I told you he had to wait for me to get off of the plane because he'd been in first class and I wasn't. And he was like, I'm going to get you into first class. And I said, okay. So we walk up to the, the ticket counter and he had his sunglasses on. And so we walk up and he pulls the sunglasses down a little bit and he looks at the girl and he was like, you know, hi, I'm David Cassidy. And the girl just melted. And so um, she upgraded me to first class. <laughs> so that was, I mean, that was, it just, that's the effect that he had on people. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful moment. There is a lovely yeah. photograph that you have on your Facebook page uh-huh. of, him, of him embracing you. I have, um, I have two pictures. Um, and so that the one, if I'm in a red sweater, that was the last night of at the Copa. And so th- this is another memory. He said to me, I used, when I would be working at his house for a while, he and I shared like the same room, like the same office, the Rat Pack is back had um, Bobby Caldwell was the man who played Frank Sinatra and Bobby Caldwell had an album, a touch. Oh, wait, uh, um, I don't remember what the name of the album was. It's like one of my favorite albums. I listened to it over and over and over again. And so on the last night of the show, David had played one of the songs that was from that album. I'll drink up all you happy people. The laughs and the drinks are on me. I'll have to, I'll, I'll circle back to the name of the song because I can't remember what it is. But anyway, yeah, that's, he yeah. sang, he just sang some lyrics from that. And I always kind of cracked up because I thought it's probably because he heard it. He let me play that album over and over. I mean, it was like it, it, the whole album start to finish over and over day in and day out. 
but um, that that picture was taken on the last day of at the Copa, oh, and it wow. ran in, on the front page of the Record Herald, which is my hometown newspaper. <laughs> Get away! Wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, but I have another picture. It's really funny. I love those pictures because when I look at the at the pictures, I'm like, it's really neat because the pictures that I, I mean, I traveled with them before everybody had cell phones that had cameras on them and all that stuff. So I have two pictures and they're both like, it's just the two of us. Kind of, yeah, like that. And that was, that's, I love those pictures. Yeah. He's clearly one of the best friends you've ever had, huh? Yeah, abso- absolutely. Absolutely. And to think you didn't know who he was when he. When he I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, Robin, it's it's absolutely been wonderful to speaking with you today. Well, thank you. I um, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to to remember him because um, he's he's still an, I mean a really important part of my life and um, somebody I I remember fondly for sure and uh, I'm glad to share you know my oh, thoughts funny. and feelings about him so thank you well your face has been glowing every time you've been talking about it (laughs) yeah well it just like that was it that was a unique um place in time and you know I mean he was really good to my mom and like my family anytime they came out and my mom has pictures when they would come and visit Las Vegas and my mom would always have a picture taken with David and she loved one of her pictures so much that um she said I'm going to make this into a Christmas card and she would send it to like some of her just a few of her friends she got like 25 of them made and like sent them to like you know 10 or so people and so David would laugh and I so and she would sign it like from Candy and David (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so that would that became a tradition so I mean he always thought that was pretty funny <laughs> oh that's wonderful I, th- I think he would be blown away by the the depth of of love and affection and the things that fans and and friends do for him yeah I think so too I mean I think that he he never I mean I think that he really never took that for granted I think he knew how important the fans were and and I think he really did know like how important he was to fans you know I mean I think he heard a lot of things about how people cared about him and why they cared about him and like these kinds of stories. So I think that he would, he would really have appreciated that for sure. And all this, I mean, the compilation of your book and then the podcast and stuff, I mean, that, that helps, like you said, with the legacy and all that. Well, and you know, what's interesting is, is that, um, like I said, I mean, I have a lot of like people that I'm in touch with and it's because of him. I mean, and people from around the world and people that are friends of mine and I'm only friends with them because, you know, they came to see him or be like, yeah, I, anyway, and I'm very glad to have crossed your path in this way. (laughs) Oh, me too. too. I appreciate all your questions (laughs) and all that. And it was a a good, a good conversation. So I hope uh, people find it interesting and I appreciate you reaching out to me. Well, look, I've probably taken up most of your morning now. That's okay. It's been a lovely conversation and I really oh, appreciate that. Uh, okay. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you. This was fun because it was really a lot more about him. And like I said, the timing of all of it and stuff, I've been thinking about him quite a bit lately. Okay. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you, okay, Robin. Bye. Bless you. Bye. Bye. My thanks to Robin for sharing her incredible life story. If you've missed any of the 39 episodes of the David Cassidy Connections podcast, you can find us on your preferred podcast listening platform. Thank you for listening. I am Louise Poynton, and I will see you on December 21 for a special Christmas episode. So until we connect again, take care.